Well, it's lovely to be with you uh, this evening. I do want to bring you uh, warm greetings from uh, Christ Church Presbyterian in Charleston, South Carolina. I uh, also want to uh, thank uh, Dr. Joel Beakey, a, a good uh, friend over many, many years, for uh, inviting uh, me to take part in this wonderful conference. And um, interestingly, the last time I was here in Grand Rapids was in 2013. And um, I was uh, with the, the, the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology over at the Byron Center Church, and I was getting ready to give a lecture on the, the 450th anniversary of the Heidelberg Catechism. And I had been doing a lot of research and reading and uh, edited a book with my friend Sebastian Heck for RHB, and, and, uh, and so I was getting ready to speak, and I was walking up, and someone said, oh, John, I would like you to meet someone. I'd like you to meet Lyle Bierma. Lyle Bierma is one of the world's foremost authorities on the Heidelberg Catechism. And so I wanted to crawl under a rock, and I said, I'll be quoting you a couple of times tonight. Uh, nice to meet you. Uh, he's become a good friend since then. Uh, well, uh, tonight, as I get ready to speak on the covenant of redemption, I understand that my uh, Dr. Myers, who just spoke to you, is a great authority on covenant theology. So it seems that every time I come to Grand Rapids, uh, the Lord humbles me. Uh, but it's a joy to be with you uh, this evening and uh, so good uh, to consider this glorious subject tonight. I do want to ask you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. And uh, we'll be looking at this and several other texts uh, this evening as we consider the topic of the gospel plan. We've heard about the gospel need. Now we'll hear about the, the gospel plan. John 17, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray. Our loving and merciful Heavenly Father, we have heard this evening about the gospel need, about the broken covenant of works, about our estrangement from God. We pray, O oh Lord, tonight that you would speak powerfully to our hearts as we consider the answer to our great gospel need. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Great undertakings and accomplishments are normally the result of great plans. Take Buckingham Palace, for example, that magnificent residence of the British monarch in central London. The 775-room residence 
went through its largest expansion in the early 18th century, 19th century, designed by the neoclassical architect John Nash. The blueprints for this renovation were spectacular. Nash skillfully planned the imposing royal residence, which in 1837 was first occupied by Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. Buckingham Palace, conceived in the mind of John Nash, is an architectural gem, and it's admired by the world over. A little over a century later, in the coastal French town of Dunkirk, over 350,000 British and Allied troops were cut off and surrounded by German forces. It was a very dark day in World War II. The the military losses would be devastating and practically ensure that a Nazi flag would be unfurled and raised over Buckingham Palace. What were they going to do? How could they possibly evacuate and save all of these men? They needed a plan. They needed a plan. Thankfully, Vice Admiral Bertram Ramsey devised one. The plan was called Operation Dynamo. It was, it was profoundly unconventional. The plan was to rescue the soldiers from the sandy shores of Dunkirk with a combination of sea vessels, including hundreds of small boats owned by brave fishermen who would venture across the English Channel to save their boys in uniform. In all, the flotilla encompassed 887 sea vessels and they evacuated a staggering, now listen to this, 338,226 men. The rescue was epic and it played a critical part in the war. Well, at our conference this week, we are considering an infinitely greater rescue than what took place at Dunkirk in the spring of 1940. A rescue that, as we will consider this evening, was planned in eternity past by the blessed triune God himself. The gospel plan, that is my assignment for this evening, the gospel plan, the pre-temporal blueprint for this great salvation makes the plans for Operation Dynamo and Buckingham Palace, plans that are heralded by the world, seem trivial by comparison. We are thinking, of course, about the gospel of God, that staggering announcement, that good news born out of the eternal counsels of God, that God sent his beloved son into the world to take on human flesh, to become, as we heard earlier, the second Adam in order to rescue wicked rebel sinners from the eternal misery that we deserve to grant the mercy, grace, and eternal joy in his presence that we do not. Dear ones, these are dark days in which we live. We were speaking at dinner at the Beakies about all the crazy things that are taking place in our culture and society. And we can often, as Christian believers, get so distracted by this. We watch the news. We want to be informed. We cannot believe what is happening. And so our hearts become distracted. And so there is no greater subject, dear ones, that we could be considering this week than the gospel of grace. A gospel that was purposed 
and planned by the triune God before time, accomplished by the same triune God in time, and will glorify the triune God for all time, especially as we, the redeemed, raise our voices in praise to God forever and ever with the angels. Thomas Boston, the notable Scottish preacher from Ettrick, expressed the following in a sermon preached from his pulpit in 1726. Quote, The grace shown to sinners is glorious grace, like a shining sun casting such a luster as is most admirable and attractive. And it is to be praised by the sons of men. God purposed to bring the elect out of the devil's family and make them his own children freely, that they seeing and feeling this glorious grace might raise a song of praise of it here and joining voices in heaven might carry it on in the highest strain there forever, opening the various folds of it and admiring the glories of free grace forever and ever. We will be doing this, dear ones, in heaven forever and ever, God's grace unfolding in its depths and glory. We'll be discovering it and learning about it and reveling in it for eternity. And then Boston says, It is dangerous then to cast a veil over it, doctrinally or practically. Well, Boston is right, isn't he? The church ought never to cast a veil over the doctrine or practical implications of the free grace set forth in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we are going to give full and unveiled exposure to the gospel, we must necessarily necessarily give attention to the genesis of it within the intra-Trinitarian councils of God. The gospel was not a divine afterthought. It wasn't a startled reaction to the fall of mankind. The gospel was planned. It was sovereignly and freely purposed. The gospel was determined by God in eternity past and according to Titus 1-2, promised before the ages began. Dear believer, there's nothing random or arbitrary about the gospel. No, in the words of Paul, God's sovereign grace in the gospel of your salvation is, quote, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Upon consideration of the gospel planned, we are naturally led to consider the the sublime doctrine known as the covenant of redemption, what theologians often refer to as the pactum salutis. The covenant of redemption, or pactum salutis, or council of peace, as it's set forth in Zechariah, is that covenant established before time, made between the three persons of the Holy Trinity to redeem the elect. To expand upon that just a little, the covenant of redemption is the pre-temporal, intra-Trinitarian agreement or plan where the Father chooses and gives the Son to be the mediator and redeemer of the elect, requiring of him certain conditions and promising him certain rewards when those conditions are met, 
And the son who voluntarily agrees to carry out those conditions given to him by the father and the Holy Spirit who voluntarily agrees to support and empower the son in the accomplishment of his mediatorial role and apply Christ's saving work to the elect. Think of the baptism of Jesus at the outset of his public ministry. This is my son in whom I am well pleased, the father declares. And the spirit comes down upon him like a dove. The Holy Trinity agreeing, pacting to be the savior of the elect. John Fesco in his excellent monograph on the covenant of redemption defines the pactum salutis in this way. Quote, the pactum salutis is the eternal intra-Trinitarian covenant to appoint the Son as covenant surety of the elect and to redeem them in the temporal execution, that is in this space and time, of the covenant of grace. The pactum salutis rests in the cradle of the federal theology of the Reformed tradition, one that posits a covenant of works between God and man in the pre-fall state and then subsequently a covenant of grace between God and the elect but fallen sinner. It's interesting to note that historically the Pactum Salutis, while a sound biblical doctrine, did not become prominent until the middle of the 17th century, uh, though there were hints of it in the writings of 16th century reformers such as Johannes Ocalampadius and Caspar Olivianus and John Calvin and William Ames, even uh, Jacob Arminius alluded to this covenant as a, quote, voluntary agreement for the salvation of sinners in the year 1603. But it wasn't until 35 years later, in 1638, that David Dixon introduced the terminology of the covenant of redemption uh, as he gave a speech at the Church of Scotland General Assembly. Subsequently, the Pactum Salutis received widespread affirmation and attention among proponents of the 17th century uh, reformed orthodoxy, such as John Owen and Francis Turretin and Patrick Gillespie and Herman Witsius. An entire chapter is dedicated to the covenant of redemption and Wilhelma Saabrockel's Dutch Second Reformation classic, The Christian's Reasonable Service. And uh, Joel, you may not remember this, but way back when, when I was in seminary, like a hundred years ago, you came into our class, Systematic Theology, and held up the Christian's Reasonable Service, published right off the press, and you told us you must get this. And so I went straight to the bookstore and spent all my food money for the week and bought them. And I have been feasting on them ever since. But there in the Christian Reasonable Service, Wilhelm Brockle says this, relative to the eternal salvation of the elect... There is a covenant of redemption between the Father and the Lord Jesus. A covenant with specific conditions and promises which it contains. How willingly the Lord Jesus has accepted them and how perfectly he has finished everything. And for those who might dismiss this doctrine, Abraco adds this, quote, One should not be of the opinion that all this is mere intellectual speculation. And that having perceived all this, one can let the matter rest. For it is the foundation, it, the covenant of redemption, is the foundation for all sure comfort, joy, now listen, 
holy amazement and the magnification of God. Do you want God magnified in your heart? Do you want to have a holy amazement of God? Then consider the covenant of redemption. He writes, therefore we must strive to understand this doctrine well and to make use of it continually. Important 17th century confessional documents such as the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Savoy Declaration of 1658, and the Helvetic Consensus 1675 give attention to the Pactum Salutis. It later found expression in the writings of Jonathan Edwards and Charles Hodge. But not everyone embraced it. Not everyone embraced it. Some believed and still do believe that the Pactum Salutis is a highly speculative doctrine with very little biblical support. Thomas Boston, for instance, along with others, rejected the the three-covenant view, claiming that the Westminster Confession taught the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, and the covenant of grace spanned back into eternity. Modern theologian Robert Letham, in an essay on John Owen's Trinitarianism, argues that the doctrine is inherently sub-Trinitarian when taken in its iteration that it's only between the Father and the Son. Cornelius uh, Plantiga um, has referred to the covenant of redemption as, now listen, grotesque and a barbaric idea, where, quote, a merciful son volunteers to bear our stripes in order to placate a vengeful father, thus affecting a catharsis and an umstimmung, uh, German for a change of mood, in the father, end quote. Well, in the remainder of our time, I want to demonstrate from Scripture that rather than being a grotesque and barbaric doctrine, the covenant of redemption is a sublime and glorious doctrine, a doctrine full of love and mercy and grace, that which stirs the deepest affections in the believer's soul as he reflects upon the pre-temporal, intra-Trinitarian saving purpose of God for the elect. A plan that is motivated by and overflowing from a bottomless wellspring of love. A love so amazing and so divine that it demands my life and my soul and my all. Now, for those of you who may be new to this doctrine, you need to know that after today, you might experience the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. You're like, what is this? The Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. It's that phenomenon that we've all experienced when we've seen something for the first time, or we've experienced something for the first time in relation to something, and then afterward, we see it everywhere. You have that experience before? We just dropped our daughter off at the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss. And, uh, you know, when she first decided she wanted to go there, and we said, okay, this looks like a good idea, we began seeing Ole Miss t-shirts, Ole Miss stickers, Ole Miss everything. I'd go to the gym, and up on the TV, there'd be an Ole Miss game. I never noticed Ole Miss before this, but now it's everywhere. Well, as we come to the covenant of redemption, the Pactum Salutis, When you've been exposed to it, you will see it everywhere, all over the pages of Holy Scripture, and it will bless your soul. Well, there are a multitude of texts, as I've just alluded to, uh, that we could go to 
this evening. If you read John Owen's Death of Death and the Death of Christ, multiple volumes, uh, Witsius, um, uh, Bavink, go to any of these and you'll find all these wonderful texts. But tonight we're going to focus on, on two main texts and then one book of the Bible. We'll look at a couple of texts in the Gospel of John. But first I want to begin with Isaiah 53, if you want to turn there with me. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. How do we see the covenant of redemption in Isaiah 53, the gospel planned? Isaiah 53 is, of course, one of the most gospel-saturated passages in the Old Testament. In it, the pactum salutis is featured by the covenantal relationship and roles of the Father and the Son to redeem the stubborn and iniquitous sheep, namely us, who have gone astray. A fitting description of the elect ones who have, with the rest of fallen humanity, rebelled against God. But despite the great wickedness of the elect, Jesus fulfilled the conditions of the pre-temporal covenant of redemption by willingly entering the estate of humiliation, by taking on human flesh, setting aside his divine privileges, not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped, taking on the form of a servant, as he is called the suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53 and elsewhere, taking the form of a servant and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2. Paul's words from Philippians 2 correspond to Isaiah's prophecy, where we are told that the suffering servant son quote, had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him, Isaiah 53, 2. He was stricken, smitten by God the Father and afflicted. Do not let those words go by you, dear ones. Those two words, by God. Stricken and smitten by God. Don't let it escape your notice. Yes, it was the religious leaders, the temple guard, the Roman soldiers who struck him and spit on him and stripped him and whipped him and made fun of him and scoffed at him and pressed into his brow the crown of thorns, but it was the invisible hand of God that was behind this suffering. It was not out of vengeance, but out of ineffable love. Love for his chosen ones. Love for you. That the Father pierced and crushed his beloved Son on the cross. The Father slew his precious and innocent Son for our transgressions and our iniquities leveling upon him the unspeakable covenant curses that we deserved, but Jesus willingly received. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord, that is Yahweh, the Father, has laid on him, the Son, the iniquity of us all. The covenantal nature gets even more pronounced in verses 10 through 12. As the Son is called God's servant, and this reward-obedience language, or obedience-reward language, is used. Isaiah 
writes, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Mike Brown and Zach Keel write this, quote, The suffering of Christ was according to the Father's will. And through Christ's obedience to the Father's will, his will was accomplished. This was not a haphazard or random idea. Rather, this was a predetermined plan between the Father and the Son that resulted in the salvation of the elect. The result of Christ fulfilling the conditions and receiving the reward prescribed in a pact between him and the Father. The Father inflicting his son, afflicting his son, pouring out his wrath upon him. He spared him not. Several years ago, uh, I went to a church picnic, which is usually a bad idea for John Payne to go to a church picnic because inevitably someone in the Payne family gets injured. Our church has, a, has an imaginary stretcher with my name on it because I'm always getting injured at the church picnic. This particular time, I was walking onto this land that a family in our church owned, and I was carrying my son Hans, and at the time, he was about three years old, and there were a bunch of kids playing down in the creek, and there was a, a rock face going down into the creek, and I said, Hans, do you want to, I, I, I picked him up, I said, Hans, do you want to go down there and play with the kids? We had just arrived, we'd been there for five minutes. He said, yeah, Dad. I said, okay, let's go. I stepped out onto this rock, and there was green slime, an algae on there, and I, I literally went head over heels. My son went flying out of my hands. We both went down. I'm looking for him to try to catch him. My head hits the cement. My face breaks open, blood everywhere. He hits the cement, and he's knocked out. A deacon tries to get us. He slides down and runs into me. My wife is screaming at the top of the, the hill. Finally, it was able to pick up Hans and go up the side of the rock and was running towards the, the road, crying out to God that he'd have mercy on him. Was in the ambulance with Marla, my wife, and our son was unconscious. They were working on him, and we were crying and praying to God, save our son, save our son. We went into the hospital and I sat in the hallway with blood and mud all over me and my son uh, in, in the other room getting scans and they were checking him out. He still hadn't said a word and, and I just wept. And I cried out to God, save my son. Would you spare him, oh God? And then a little later, the nurses asked us to walk into the room and uh, he was looking around, he still hadn't said anything, and finally a, a, a doctor gave him a little medicine. And he said, I don't like it. And we all burst out in tears. 
Thank you, God. And what occurred to me was how I was crying out to God to spare my son, to save my son. And yet the father willingly did not spare his son, but gave him over for us all. And with him gives us all things. That is the gospel planned by the father, not of a vengeful father who, who's carrying out divine child abuse, as we hear some liberal theologians saying. This is a father so full of love for those whom he has set his love and affection upon before the foundation of the world and wanting to bring these elect, a bride, into fellowship with his son and thus with God. This is the love of God set forth for us in the gospel. Isaiah highlights uh, not only the conditions met, but also the rewards given that the son receives for his faithfulness to fulfill the required covenant conditions. Quote, his offspring shall prosper in his hand, it says. They will be accounted righteous or justified before God and like a victorious conqueror the son's name will be exalted and he will receive the glorious spoils of victory namely the elect ones whom he will lead into glory as it says again in Philippians therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is why we have this, this language of God the Father exalting the Son and giving rewards and blessings to the Son because it flows out of this covenant of redemption purposed before time. And carried out in time for his glory and for our salvation for all time. The Apostle Paul believed in and taught sovereign grace, which is why he put no confidence in the law, why he put no confidence in the flesh to save him or to save anyone. Uh, the book of Romans and the book of Galatians so powerfully make this point as, as so many want to put confidence in, in their spiritual performance. Or their assumption that God will accept them because of their bloodline or their family connections or their, their attempts at obeying the law. But when you recognize what God has done for us, what he has planned in the gospel, what he has carried out in his son, we realize that to trust in those things is to, to cast doubt on the, the wisdom and plan of God. Paul put no confidence in the flesh, nowhere Nowhere did he communicate God's sovereign grace, God's planned gospel more clearly than in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Look there with me, Ephesians 1. And here we have a cascade of sovereign grace. Paul commences his epistle to the Ephesians with a glorious run-on sentence in the original Greek. Indeed, the passage in verses 3 through 14 is a cascade of sovereign grace flowing from the eternal counsels and redemptive activity of the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. The text supports the idea of a pactum salutis between the three persons of the Godhead, a pretemporal agreement to save the elect. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to what? The purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This sacred bond established before time is here set forth as the Father unconditionally chooses sinners in Christ before the foundation of the world and predestinates them unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. The salvation of sinners is not random. It's not left to chance. When Christ was carrying out his public ministry, when he went to Golgotha, he wasn't hoping someone would believe in him. He was carrying out a work given to him by his Father. Salvation is not left up to chance, but is, quote, according to the purpose of the Father's will to the praise of his glorious grace. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, Paul writes to his disciple in 2 Timothy 1.9, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, now listen, before the ages began. The redemption of the elect was purposed in eternity past, therefore, but accomplished through the Father's soul-appointed mediator, his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul goes on to write in Ephesians 1, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God lavishes his love upon us. Overflowing grace. In Christ, never-ending, limitless, bottomless grace. How could we ever complain, beloved? But we do. How can we ever be thankless, but we are? Have you ever had the experience when someone, uh, perhaps you you have a gift exchange at Christmas or or, or a family member comes and, and just gives you a gift which is extraordinary or numerous gifts and you pull out your one little thing, you got them. And you feel so overwhelmed with the the generosity and the, the blessing that they've given to you in whatever form that may take. Well, here we're supposed to see God's extraordinary, astonishing grace being poured out to us through Jesus Christ. 
The redemption of the elect was planned before time in the Pactum Salutis, but it had to be purchased in time. The price was not silver or gold or any such thing, but the precious, atoning, efficacious, propitiatory blood of God's Son. Only that would do. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not your family connections. Not your attempts to obey the law. Not your church membership. Not even your faith. People talk about this these days. Well, I, my faith means so much to me. Politicians, my faith means so much to me. I, I live by my faith. Faith in what? Well, not, not, an, not really much of an answer there. We're not saved by our faith. We're saved by Christ, the one in whom we put our faith. Paul declares that Jesus, quote, loved the church and gave himself up for her, not for everyone, but for the undeserving elect whom the Father, Son, and Spirit covenanted to save before the foundation of the world. Thomas Boston, in a lovely little collection of sermons, published in 1775 that I picked up in a little Edinburgh antiquarian bookshop about 20 years ago, says this, the accepted sinner gets the king of heaven's pardon under his great seal, whereby his guilt of eternal wrath is ever removed, as if he had never sinned. God takes the pen dips it in the blood of the beloved and blots out his whole accounts. All his past and present sins are formally pardoned and all his sins to come are secured not to be imputed to him for guilt and revenging wrath. What a savior. What a Savior. Finally, Paul writes in Ephesians 1, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the, again, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance, the down payment, the earnest, until we acquire possession of it that is in fullness to the praise of his glory. This salvation has been accomplished chiefly for the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. Do you see this refrain over and over again? It's why we sing The majestic cascade of God's sovereign grace continues with the work of the Spirit. In the pre-temporal covenant of redemption, therefore, the Holy Spirit agreed with the Father and the Son to support and empower the Son by implication in his role as mediator, to support him in the fulfillment of the Father's conditions, and to apply the benefits of redemption to those whom the Father chose 
and the ones for whom Christ died before the world began. John Owen, in his magisterial Death of Death and the Death of Christ, explained that the Holy Spirit was active in the work of Christ under three main heads. Number one, in his incarnation. When through the, quote, overshadowing power of the Spirit, end quote, the eternal Son was miraculously conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Secondly, the Spirit was involved in his oblation or suffering when Christ, according to Hebrews 9.14, offered himself without spot to God, adding, whether it be meant of the offering himself a blood sacrifice on the cross or his presentation of himself continually before the Father, it is by the eternal Spirit. It is by the Spirit that he offered himself to God. And then thirdly, in his resurrection... Owen quotes Romans 8, 11, mentioning, quote, the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead. Have you thought about that? The, the way that the Holy Spirit was very much involved in the work of Christ and supporting him and empowering him, comforting him and strengthening him? Spirit's work is evident in many more ways in the life and ministry of Jesus and also in the lives of the elect, uniting them the elect to the living Christ and through that blessed union supplying them with all the benefits of redemption. This brings us to the Gospel of John. In concert, there are multiple texts in John's Gospel that clearly underscore the Gospel planned in the covenant of redemption. Perhaps the most obvious example is found in John 6, 37 through 40. Turn there with me if you will. It's there that our Lord, with unflinching confidence, declares that none whom the Father gave to him would be lost. John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raised it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Just a couple of observations. Look at verse 37 and 39. Here we have this language, all that the Father gives me. He will lose none of those that he has given me. What does this mean? Who are those whom the Father has given to Christ? Well, it's the elect. Those whom God the Father chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. Who the Son covenanted. Those who the Son covenanted with his Father to save by agreeing to fulfill those conditions his father had set forth, which were no less than a perfect fulfillment of God's law as the second Adam and a satisfaction of the father's justice through being and becoming a propitiation as a sacrificial lamb. Secondly, three times the will of the father is mentioned in these verses. Did you notice that? His will to lose none of whom he gave to Christ and appointed him to save. Now this is 
in no way teaching that there are different or competing wills within the Godhead. There's been a lot of debate about that over the last couple of years. Christ is merely drawing attention to the pactum salutis and the conditions that the Father laid upon the Son and that the Son willingly and joyfully accepted. As John Flavel writes, quote, God the Father and God the Son, the former as a creditor and the latter as surety, the Father stands upon satisfaction, the Son engages to give it, a redemption designed by the Father and purchased by the Son for us. Notice as well in this text the response of the sinner. Those who come to me, I will never cast out. Those who believe in me. This gospel call goes out to the world. The free offer of the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Come to the Lord. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have the final resurrection. The final resurrection that all the elect will be raised to eternal life. Not one will be lost. There are many other texts in John's gospel that highlight the gospel plan in the eternity past. John 4, 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 5, 30 and 36. I can do nothing on my own. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, the works the Father has given me to accomplish. And then again, as I read earlier in John 17, at the beginning of Christ's high priestly prayer, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. What a moment, by the way. What a moment. Let not the drama escape you. This covenant is made in eternity past between the Father and the Son. As was mentioned earlier, the angels, 1 Peter 1, are stretching their necks and seeing these events unfold and the the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, the angels sent to to celebrate and, and Christ's perfect life lived according to the law and then in his public ministry doing miracles and showing himself as the Son of God and then he comes, Christ is about to face the wrath of his Father. And he's about to carry out the, 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 the pinnacle of what was covenanted in eternity, eternity past between him and the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And he says this in this prayer, Father, the hour has come. It is here. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life. Now listen, to all whom you have given to him. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Beloved, when we survey the scriptures in these texts and countless others, we cannot help but agree with Herman Witsius, who states that, quote, it cannot on any pretense be denied that there is a compact between the Father and the Son, which is the foundation of our salvation. So, dearly beloved, as we contemplate the gospel planned, 
we must remember that there are three overarching biblical covenants to speak of. Two of them were mentioned earlier in the fine lecture we heard. The covenant of redemption, which I've just uh, taught on, a pre-temporal covenant between God the Father and the Son, and I would argue God the Holy Spirit. The covenant of works made by God at creation with all of humanity and a covenant of grace made by God with the elect. As we bring this time to a close, though, we must ask a question that we should always ask when studying Christian doctrine because doctrine is always for life. We in the Reformed tradition can get a bit heady at times. Can I get an amen? (laughs) We can get a bit heady. And we can find ourselves wanting to just know more and to be able to articulate ourselves well, to show well at the Men's Fellowship how much we've learned from Turretin. But Doctrine is always for life. It always translates into Christian experience. So what are the uses of this doctrine? There are many, 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 but here are just three. And the first one has three words associated with it. Comfort, assurance, and security. Comfort, assurance, and security. As I mentioned at the outset of this message. We are living in uncertain times. There's a lot of really, really bad news. So much is unsettled, constantly in flux. But dear believer, your salvation is not. Your God is not unsettled. Your God is not worried He's not anxious. He's not wondering what's going to happen. Our salvation is not uncertain. While hanging on the cursed cross, Jesus did not cry out, My work is partially done, Father. It's almost complete. As if to imply that we must complete that which is lacking. No, that's not what he said at all, is it? As his lungs were collapsing... As his blood was pouring out of his veins onto the earth, he took a deep breath and he proclaimed, It is finished. It is finished. The pactum salutis provides profound comfort to our souls. For in Christ we were chosen. Through Christ, we've been reconciled to God, and with Christ, we are already seated in the heavenly places. John Flavel speaks of the, quote, abundant security that God gives the elect for their salvation, and that not only in respect of the covenant of grace made with them, but also this covenant of redemption made with Christ for them. Happy it were, he writes, if puzzled and perplexed Christians would turn their eyes from the defects that are in their obedience to the fullness and completeness of Christ's obedience and see themselves complete in him 
when most lame and defective in themselves. Remember Robert Murray McShane somewhere writing that when he goes to confess his sin, he thinks about specific sins that he's committed. And when confessing them says, Lord, thank you that Jesus didn't do this. Thank you that Jesus didn't do what I do. And that he is a perfect substitutionary atonement for me. We are living in uncertain days. The pandemic, the sexual revolution, the social justice, critical race theory revolution, the growing totalitarianism in our government. These are all testing the faith of believers, sometimes causing us to falter, to doubt, to worry, to be distracted, to wonder. Wondering if God will indeed complete that which he began in us. Has the thought crossed your mind, will the church be undone at last? Many wonder, will I make it to the promised land? But here in the covenant of redemption, we are taught that none will be lost. What a comfort to our souls in the midst of fiery trials. Our bodies they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. But here, in the covenant of redemption, we are reminded that none will be lost. None will be lost. None will be lost. In the words of J.C. Ryle, we are taught that Christ will never allow any soul that is committed to him to be lost and cast away. He will keep it safe from grace to glory in spite of the world, the flesh, and the devil. No, not one bone of his mystical body will ever be broken. Not one lamb in his flock will ever be left behind in the wilderness. He will raise to glory in the last day the whole flock entrusted to his charge, and not one will be found missing. Dear friend, if you are in Christ by grace through faith, then you must remember that God loves you with an eternal love an inescapable love. He loves you with an everlasting love, a costly love. Your name is inscribed in the Lamb's book of life. Your name is graven on the Father's hand and written in the wounds of Christ. John Flavel, once again in his classic 17th century treatise on the covenant of redemption, which I would warmly commend to you, imagines how the dialogue may have gone between the Father and the Son In the covenant of redemption, the father saying, My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? And Christ responds, Oh, my father, such is my love to and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all your bills. Bring in all your bills, Father, that I may see what they owe you. Lord, bring them all in, that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand you shall require it. 
I will rather choose to suffer your wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me be all their debt. The Father, but my Son, if you undertake for them, you must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. The Son responds, I am content, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. Oh, the love of the Father and sparing not his own son for wretched sinners like us. Oh, the love of Christ in bearing the unspeakable, unmitigated wrath of God in our stead to pay our debts in full, to atone for not just some or most, but all of our sins, and to pay the price of our redemption with his very own life. Oh, the love of the Holy Spirit in supporting the work of Christ and applying it to us, being for us and in us a guarantee of our inheritance in Christ. Nothing, therefore, Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a comfort! Not even our weak and struggling faith can separate us. From the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, Thomas Boston declares, quote, The necks of all the elect were on the block, and it was in the hand of spotless justice to reach them the fatal stroke. But glorious, free grace admits a surety in their room. And that surety, dear ones, is Christ, your Savior, your Lord, your elder brother, your prophet, priest, and king. In addition to fostering comfort, assurance, and security, the covenant of redemption is intended to motivate true piety. Reflecting upon the gospel planned in the Pactum Salutis is intended to animate in us by the Spirit unto sincere devotion to Christ. How can you not love one who has so loved you? We're called to be godly in the diligent use of the means of grace, to grow in grateful obedience to his commands. Dear believer, you've been reconciled to God through the mediation of Christ, which means you've been accepted into the beloved and given access to him, which means that you've been invited to have communion with God. Communion with the triune God. And as you hear his word and gospel preached, and as you come to the Lord's table, and as you receive and or witness baptisms, and as you pray to God, you know that God has promised, he's attached his promises to these means, that he would communicate Christ to you, that you would abide in him and thus commune with God the Father in the Son, by the Spirit. John Owen writes, quote, Our communion with God lies in his giving himself to us and our giving ourselves and all that he requires to him. 
This communion with God flows from that union which is in Christ Jesus. Comfort, piety, and finally, confidence in mission. We don't keep this to ourselves, this gospel. The covenant of redemption should animate the mission of the church. The apostles were not shy about proclaiming the sovereign grace of God. The apostles, Paul and Peter, did not withhold the doctrine of election and the covenant of redemption, yet they were passionate evangelists. Why evangelism if if God is sovereign, some asked? Well, I will ask them, why evangelize if he is not? Why evangelize if he is not sovereign? Well, we began our time considering two esteemed sets of plans, plans for Buckingham Palace and plans for that glorious Operation Dynamo. They demonstrate that great undertakings almost always happen when great plans are behind them. That is certainly true of the gospel of grace. And may our reflection upon the gospel planned stir our hearts, dear ones, to love and wonder and praise into a life of piety and mission. Let us pray. Our loving Father, we've only touched upon, we've only explored a tiny part of the depths of the riches of this glorious doctrine of the covenant of redemption. We pray, Lord, that as we read our Bibles, as we hear your word preached, that we would be taken back again and again to these eternal councils where the gospel was planned, where our redemption was purposed and where it was covenanted between the Father and the Son and the Spirit to save a people for yourself to the praise of your glorious grace and to our eternal joy in your presence. We pray in Jesus' name.